Did you know that financial intimacy can lead to better sexual intimacy with your significant other? Money is never just about dollars and cents. Money is wrapped up with emotions such as fear, insecurity, envy, and guilt, and attitudes such as control. So want to improve your financial intimacy? Grab our free guide at www.foundersconnect.co forward slash financial intimacy today. Welcome to Founders Connect Podcast. We help lifestyle entrepreneurs to grow their business online and create a happier marriage. Did you know that approximately 45% of marriages end up in divorce and 65% of all startups fail due to founder conflicts? Well, we're here to change that. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest and practical tips to help you with business, relationships, and sustainable living. Now, let the fun begin! Welcome to Founders Connect. And uh, Cindy, who have we got on today? Today, we have Tara McMullen. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Tara McMullen. She's on a mission to turn today's small business owners into tomorrow's economic powerhouse. She's the founder of Co-Commercial, a platform for helping small business workers work together to overcome daily challenges, solve problems, and achieve even better results. She's also the host of What Works, a podcast that takes you behind the scene of successful small businesses and show you what's working in marketing, operations, time management, product development, and more. <laughs> so much more. I know. Entrepreneur name it as one of 24 top woman host podcasts for business owners. There you go, Tara. <laughs> She's also sort of after speaker, educator, and a best-selling money and life expert on Creative Live. Tara's work has been featured in Fast Company Inc., Daily Worth, Forbes, and The Huffington Post. Okay. You can find out more about Co-Commercial at cocommercial.co, and we're going to talk a lot about what that is and how it all works and why Tara's built that. I knew Tara as Tara Gentili, and so this is actually a recent change that's happened. And Tara did get married recently with her lovely husband, Sean, a beautiful, stunning Glacier National Park in Montana. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. And uh, tell us about that experience for you. This is your second marriage, right? Yes, this is my second marriage. Sean and I met about five and a half years ago, and we pretty quickly realized that this was like a lifetime thing, but we're on both of our second marriages now. Um, And so we had kind of, uh, we had both gone back and forth on whether we wanted to go down the path of getting married again or not. I think as a lot of people do in those kind of second or third or fourth long-term relationships. But at the beginning of this year, we both decided this is something we want to do. We want to make it official. We want to kind of mark this as a celebration and a milestone in our relationship. So his family is from the Flathead Valley, which is right close to where Glacier National Park is. And Montana has sort of become like a second home for me. And so when we started brainstorming, what do we want to do to mark this milestone? What is this going to look like for us? Because even if we were going to do something, you know, fairly conventional, like getting married, we wanted to make sure that it was as us as it could be, that it really represented what we wanted from marriage and from a wedding ceremony as possible. So as I started brainstorming and we started talking about what our options were, it became kind of a no-brainer that 
eloping in Glacier National Park, which is one of our absolute happy places, was going to be the thing to do. It was just obvious that this was perfect. And so I Googled around and discovered how freaking easy it was going to be. I thought, man, getting married in a national park must be kind of difficult. There must be all sorts of rules and regulations. And there are, but if you're really just looking to have a couple of people witness your ceremony, it's actually very easy and incredibly inexpensive. So um, we, yeah, so we made uh, the decision to do that and we planned, again, a very us ceremony. It was very kind of emotionally vulnerable. It was very real. It was very secular and we just had this amazing experience that was all of like, I don't know, three minutes long <laughs> um, at, at sunrise on Lake McDonald. And it was just absolutely gorgeous. And I think for us, you know, people ask, how's married life treating you? And they know the answer is like, married life is treating you the same as like living together life. And at the same time, I think creating that marker, that milestone does change something. It changes I think a level of awareness and intention around your relationship, at least for me, my experience changes it for me. And that's been my experience of what that ceremony was and what the last couple of months since we did it has been. Amazing. I can say both of us took knowledge when you said, yeah, how easy it is to elope. And we're going, damn, we should have done that. <laughs> I, that's what most people have said. It's like, oh, well, we should have done that. I <laughs> uh, love it. Love it. Okay. We're going to dive into the intersection of relationship and business in a moment. But first, we're going to unwrap a little bit or peel the layers back a bit about Tara as a person. Cindy, why don't you kick that off? So on a scale of one to 10, how weird do you think you are? How weird do I think I am? That's a great question. I am probably like, I would give myself maybe a six and a half. Um, I would, yeah, I, I feel like seven is too strong, but I feel like six is too low. So I'm going to say six and a half. And my thought process behind this is that I am a pretty weird person. I have plenty of quirks. I have plenty of things that I do that go against the grain or that are a little unconventional. But at the same time, I have such exposure to people who are truly weird and creative and unconventional. Sometimes I just feel so square and vanilla compared to those people. <laughs> and I just and I love them so dearly that I would hate to like even compare myself to their level of awesomely weirdness. So I would say I am definitely unconventional. I'm creative. I make unusual choices. I have weird hobbies or interests, but not really that weird. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Love that answer. Um, I love the creative element of that because I know you started with like a crafts community mm -hmm. um, in your local area. So we'll jump into that when we talk about how co-commercial came to be. So this question I love, if you had all the time and money in the world, what would you be doing? Yeah. So <laughs> I think if I had all the time and money in the world, there is still a huge part of me that would want to run the business that I currently run. I believe so strongly in the mission behind co-commercial, in the product that we have created, in the service that we provide to our members, that I would hate for that to not exist anymore just because I got a free ticket to life. So I would absolutely still want to be running my business. And in addition to believing very strongly in the mission, I love 
working. Like I'm not a quote unquote workaholic. I don't work crazy hours. I'm not constantly consumed by work. Although Sean might tell you something different, Um, (laughs) but I do find a lot of personal fulfillment in creating things that people find useful and valuable. And I would not want to give that up completely. Mm. That said, I think I would want my role to be a little bit different. Right now, my role in my company is very, you know, like so many small business owners, I've got fingers in a lot of different pots in my company, right? I am the CEO. And at the same time, I'm also director of marketing. I help out with product delivery. I'm available to answer questions about customer service, you know, all the typical things, even though I have a team of people who are helping me run our community and create what we create. So ideally where I'd like to see myself is only in the role of CEO and visionary and really have the capacity to run the company with a team of people who specialize in the area that they're in charge of instead of me trying to wear a bunch of different hats to cover some different bases and you know our other team members wearing a few different hats as well. And then in my spare time, (laughs) or maybe half time. Yes. So Sean and I are on a quest to visit all 59 national parks in the next nine years. Uh, We started last year. So it was a 10-year goal. We have nine years left. We're at 10 parks. Still leaves 49 parks for us to visit. That's a lot. (laughs) And I love nothing more than being outdoors in the mountains or in the desert or in the prairie or wherever I find myself just surrounded by the beauty of our world and wilderness and wildlife. And I would love to spend a lot more time doing that. I mean, I find myself to be very, I think, privileged to be able to spend as much time doing that as I do. But at the same time, there's just never enough. There is never enough exploring. And so for me, if I had all the time and money in the world, yes, I'd want to keep working in my business and on my business, but I'd also like to spend a lot more time exploring. Love it. So what is your favorite quote? Favorite quote? It has to be something that Tina Fey has said. To me, she is absolutely brilliant. She's funny, but she is also incredibly smart. I don't know that I could pick a favorite quote of hers, but there are things that I quote from her book, Bossy Pants, and from Mm. 30 Rock all the time. The quote that's coming up for me this morning is that she starts off one of the chapters in Bossy Pants saying something to the effect of people say, don't let them see you cry. But I say, if you're that upset, cry it out because it'll terrify the men. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that. And I think it's so true is that we stigmatize emotions. We stigmatize vulnerability. And I find myself having, like, I know that I am the victim of the stigmatization, right? I pride myself on being unemotional. I pride myself on not being very vulnerable. And that's ridiculous. And so I all the time have that particular quote playing in my head reminding myself that when I am feeling emotional, there's a damn good reason for it. And if I let that out, it's going to have an effect on whoever I'm communicating with. And whether that effect is positive or negative, that effect is important in and of itself. And that effect gives me power in that situation. I love that. And Cindy is very big on energy. So for her, it's, you know, before it's who you are, what do you do? It's how do I feel about you? Yeah. Um, and that's something that we've had to work through, especially, and you would know this, on an online world where you don't have that initial, you know, 
you're in front of each other, like in a cafe, it's very different, right? So right. how do we, and this is going to come back to the community building aspect, how do you actually learn how to, I guess, create and enable the space for people to openly share? Because that's something that I know there is a stigma around it, particularly on, in the startup world where it's like, you know, you've got a business, you've got to look strong, you're the leader, you're the voice and the everything. But I'm seeing a lot of stuff around depression, anxiety, mental health, you know, suicides, relationship breakups, there's a whole bunch of things that's happening that we know are happening. I'm glad that you are building a community that can address some of these issues because that's something that's very important as humans. Okay, so the next question I had for you is, who's been your greatest mentor, whether it's in life or career, like, and what have you learned from them? Yeah, other than Tina Fey, than <laughs> who Tina. I will Tina's, name, Tina's name as a virtual mentor. Yeah. I think one of my personal mentors that I know very well and have certainly bounced a lot of questions and problems and ideas off of over the years is a woman named Amanda Steinberg, who is formerly the founder and CEO of Daily Worth. And now she's got her fingers in all sorts of exciting ventures, both economic and political and business and financial. And it's amazing what she's up to right now. But Amanda is this incredibly attuned woman who is willing to explore both the emotional and vulnerability side of issues at the same time she is not willing to take any crap from anyone. (laughs) You know, I think that she would readily admit that there are certainly times when she hasn't been perfect on that particular score, but she holds herself to a very high standard on both sides of those things. And she is able to look at any situation from both sides. What's the emotional cost of this decision or what's the emotional return on investment of this situation? And then also objectively, what's the business cost of this situation or what's the return on investment of this situation? And so I've learned an incredible amount from her tactically, logistically, operationally, but also mindset-wise and visibility-wise and just being willing to look past assumptions and look past what feels comfortable in a bad way to find more creative solutions to business challenges and find better paths to meeting business goals. Fantastic. So what bullshit do you see going around your industry that you disagree with? Oh, I see so much going around my industry that I disagree with. If you allow me to take this to a a pretty meta level here first. Okay, awesome. So one thing that I am particularly intrigued by and that I have created co-commercial as an antidote to is that we have all as digital entrepreneurs, digital small business owners, freelancers in a digital economy, we have largely gone out on our own out of a sense of independence, out of a sense of wanting to do our own thing, recreating the system, finding a new path forward. But what I see in my industry, which is business mentoring space, it's the business education space. If we're going to get a little more crass about it, it's the make money online space, right? What I see happening there is a recreation of capitalist patriarchal, white supremacist systems where we assign power to people for God only knows what reasons, (laughs) you know, because they got the most likes on a post or they brought the most traditional capital to the table. 
Those people get assigned power. And then those people are allowed to create systems in which only certain people can pass from one level to the next, where there are barriers, velvet ropes, closed doors put in between information, ideas, experience, and the real needs of the people that they're trying to serve. Now, what I'm not saying is that information and experience should be We'll take a step back. I believe that influencers, experts, people with incredible amounts of experience should absolutely be paid well for what they do and that what they do is incredibly valuable. But I think that we need to reevaluate the systems in which we are creating the transactions around that information and experience and ideas. And I think that's where the biggest problems lay. And so what we're trying to do with co-commercial is create something flatter, where instead of looking to a single expert or a single trainer, we're able to recognize the value of our collective experiences and understand that the more people we bring together, the more information, the more experiences, the more ideas, the more frameworks, formulas, understanding we can build in one place. And that platform for that becomes the valuable thing as opposed to the information or brain power of one individual. So that to me is what is so wrong in our industry and also what I'm working every day to try and fix. Yeah. There's this whole guru movement, if you want to call it yeah. that. I've been in a personal training space for over a decade, two decades now. And there are certainly people, you know, I'm not going to name names, but we know who they are, who just seem to get all the opportunities. And then, but what it does is it's a self-perpetuating myth. One of my associates posted on LinkedIn this morning, a video where she went into Google search and typed in top entrepreneurs or something like that as a keyword. Mm -hmm. And the first thing you see on the Google results are the image results and they're all white men. Yes. Right. And for the first 10, right. Or 15 or whatever. And she's like, where the F's the women. And so, yeah, there is something there that, that you're touching on, which, which I, I, we can totally see. And I love the mission of co-commercial, which is really powerful. You are listening to the Founders Connect podcast, helping lifestyle entrepreneurs to grow their business online and create a happier marriage. Now back to the show. Let's talk about business. So how did that come to be? And I remember hearing that you started off your career at Borders. Yes. <laughs> so even to take you back even further than that, my degree is in religious studies and I was on a path to starting my master's degree, doing my PhD. My goal was to become a professor of religious studies because that's the main thing that you do with that degree. And so I was on that path and ended up hitting a period of pretty deep depression in my life and depression, anxiety, and actually decided to quit grad school before it even started. So I was a grad school dropout without even starting my first day. In that decision then, I needed to do something. So I took a full-time job at Borders where I had had a summer job. That was my bridge between college and graduate studies and took that full-time job. There was so much of it that I loved and that I didn't expect to love. Like I knew I would love to be around coffee. I knew I'd love to be around books. I knew I'd love to be around music and movies. That made, all made sense to me. But what I didn't expect to love was the business aspect of it. I didn't expect to love managing people. I didn't expect to love digging into the numbers, seeing how we could move the needle on sales in this area or that area. And so I actually learned a ton about 
business management and business growth and marketing and merchandising in this position at Borders because may they rest in peace, but one of the mistakes that they had actually made, which benefited me immensely, was they gave a lot of autonomy to each individual store. So what almost happened was that we were a small business with the resources of a Fortune 500 company, which was awesome Awesome. because we got to experiment, we got to learn all these sorts of things. And so I really love to learn business there, or I really learned to love business there. And so that all being said, (laughs) retail is awful. And I think anyone who's worked in retail understands the burnout that can come from the demands of working in retail management. I was 25 years old. I was making $28,000 a year and managers were required to work 50 to 60 hours a week as just a minimum. And then during Christmas, we were working 70 to 80 hours a week, no problem, for $28,000 a year. And this was not that long ago. I mean, we're talking 2004. So, you know, inflation hasn't been that much Mm -hmm. in that period of time. So I got really burnt out. That contributed to additional depressive episode that I went through. And so after I met my first husband and became pregnant with my daughter, I decided to jump ship there and focus on being a mom full-time for a little while. But at the same time that I decided to focus on being a mom full-time, I was also thinking to myself, all right, I know there are other moms out there who work from home, make money online, get paid to be bloggers, get paid to do this, get paid to do that. If they can figure it out, I can figure it out too. So with that in mind, I took a deep dive into the blogosphere at that time. And so this was 2008 now. And in 2008, people were still kind of figuring out how it all was going to work. Lots of bloggers were still making money through sponsorships and advertising as opposed to digital products or services. And so I was just getting the lay of the land. It took me about six months to launch my first website. My first website was called handmadeinpa.net. So PA is Pennsylvania, which which is where I live. And my goal was just to connect creators and makers and artists and craftspeople in Pennsylvania, in the Keystone State. And so that was awesome. I mean, even though it was just a little traffic-wise or influence-wise, it was just an itty-bitty little thing. What really mattered was that it had a huge impact in the people's lives that it touched. We legitimately were connecting people who were becoming best friends or business partners or people were connecting with wholesalers that they wouldn't have otherwise connected with. And so we were really changing things for people. And that was amazing. It was an amazing experience. And through that, then I got all sorts of other opportunities. So again, it wasn't about how big I was or how influential I was to a large group of people. It was about being influential to exactly the right people. That brought on all sorts of other opportunities, including purchasing a business from someone else, a blog that was a business from someone else, getting into teaching, social media, and blogging, and things like that. And slowly, it kind of transformed to the point where my real interest was in elevating and serving the small business owners of all stripes that I could see around me. So as time went on, I found myself getting into the system that I was just describing, that very hierarchical sort of expert-oriented or guru-oriented, as you said, kind of culture and system where I was trying to make myself look like a hotshot so that people would buy from 
me and it got old. <laughs> I got tired of it. I could start to see that I was not fulfilling what I set out to fulfill. I was not creating something new. I was reproducing something really old. And so by the end of 2016, I was burnt out on that system, but I wasn't burnt out on my original mission, which was connecting small business owners. So that was how we made the transition to focusing exclusively on co-commercial and this mission to connect people together, to help them work together so that they could help each other figure out issues, problems, goals, instead of always feeling like they needed to shell out a few thousand dollars to get someone's magic solution. So why do you think business owners struggle with asking for help? Oh my gosh, everything. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so earlier you were talking about how people are afraid of showing up as less than successful or, you know, showing up as not having everything figured out. That is absolutely the top barrier that we run into for people, even in a space like ours where this is what we talk about, right? We talk about the fact that all of us don't have everything figured out. I don't have everything figured out and I put that on display on a regular basis now inside of co-commercial. It is still the number one barrier that we run into. So we have to help people We have to tell that story over and over again, that no one has it all figured out, whether you're Tim Cook or you're Mark Zuckerberg or you're Sarah Blakely, every entrepreneur is asking for help. They're asking for support. They're asking for feedback. And that doesn't make you less than, it makes you more than. (laughs) And so the more you can ask for support, the more you can get out of your business and the more success you can create. Another objection that we run into and another fear that people have is getting the wrong kind of feedback. The internet is a place with all sorts of unsolicited advice, all sorts of people saying mean things for no good reason. It's also very overwhelming often to ask for feedback or support. You can get really unexpected answers, which should be a good thing, but often it makes you question everything. And that's an anxiety-inducing, overwhelming place to be, right? So another thing that we do to overcome that barrier is actually coaching people on how to ask for help. Here are scripts you can use. Here's what to avoid. Here's what to include. Give us more context. Ask a more specific question. Tell us exactly what kind of feedback you're looking for. Tell us where you are in the process. All those little details that you include in your ask help you to get feedback that's actually going to be helpful to you, whether it's unexpected or whether it's, you know, yep, that's exactly what I needed to hear. That's what I thought you were going to say. Um, So that you can actually put that feedback to use as opposed to it causing you overwhelm or anxiety. And then I think that the last thing that causes people to not ask for help is just an overall fear of visibility. The moment you ask for help, people see you, right? In a community our size, even in communities much larger than ours, the moment you post something, someone is going to see you. Someone's going to see that you are working toward your mission, that you're putting something out there, that you're striving to create your great work. And that's a really vulnerable place to be. And it keeps people silent, even when they know exactly what they need. And so that's a conversation that we have over and over again, that being visible is part of this game. Showing up is part of this game. If you want to do great work, if you want to have a successful business, you have to be willing to
willing to be visible and put yourself in that space of vulnerability. And our community is a place that's easy for people to practice that, right? So that's what we're trying to cultivate is a space, a platform in which it's easy for people to show up, to practice, so that then they can go out into the rest of the world and feel more confident when they put their great work on display or when they ask their customers a question. And so those kind of the three pieces that I see keeping people asking for help. And it's also three things that keep people from showing up the way they should be showing up for their businesses. Mm. So what's the biggest challenge you face with running your own business and maintaining a happy and healthy relationship at home? Yeah, the biggest challenge I run into with running my business today is explaining what we're doing Mm. to people because it is so different from what people expect. People expect to sign up for a freebie and go to a webinar and then buy an expensive online course from somebody who says they've made millions of dollars doing this one weird trick, right? That's what people expect. And we're saying something completely different. Getting people to believe that and see the value in that and be willing to even experience it, even with like a really generous money back guarantee is really hard. And it's a challenge that I have not solved yet. And I think it's a challenge that will continue to pose itself even as I chip away at it. So that's our hardest challenge business-wise. My biggest challenge in my relationship, I have plenty of challenges in my relationship, but we're starting to enter new territory. And so I think that it's an opportunity to talk about that a little bit. For the first time in five and a half years, Sean is coming into the business and starting to help me out with some marketing things, learning more about what we really do. Like he tells people all the time, my wife does this. She has this company. She runs her own business. Isn't that awesome? But it's dawned on me over the last few weeks how little he actually knows about what we do and how we do what we do. And so we, I think as a team, as a couple, two people in a relationship are facing a new challenge, which is recognizing and balancing the interplay between a working relationship and a romantic relationship. We're certainly not you know, entering into new territory. There's plenty of other people who make these relationships work. But for us, it's a place that we've avoided or it's a place he's been avoiding <laughs> for five and a half years. And so... I think what it comes down to really is our number one challenge, regardless of the situation, which is kind of merging our two or understanding our two different communication styles. He is an extremely emotionally available person. He is willing to talk through anything. He's an external processor. I am a less emotionally available person. I don't like to talk through things because I'm an internal processor. I would prefer to sit and think until I have a solution. And of course, he feels very isolated by that. So both with work and in our relationship, that's our top challenge. But like I said, we are personally heading into new territory as we bring that into the work environment as well. And so I will be interested to see how that challenge plays itself out. So far, so good, but it's still very, very new. (laughs) Well, that's a a very, you're right. It's a very common area for couples to move into. We've definitely been through there since we got you know, together and went through the wedding. The whole wedding thing was a whole another conversation. Totally. but, uh, But you know, understanding each other's communication styles is critical, right? And I love that the fact that Sean is coming in on what you do because that will just give him better insight into, you know, well, that, that's actually 
not only what you do, but the stresses that you need to deal with to make it work. And that gives empathy, which is, I think for us, the key to success in relationship is being by each other when shit hits the fan, right? Like when things don't work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. So love that. I just love how Cindy sort of just went straight into relationship, but I'm going to pull it back (laughs) a little bit. One question around co-commercial and community for business owners. So can you just share like how community building can benefit a business and make it more efficient or effective and more impactful? Absolutely. This is a favorite topic of mine. So (laughs) community building, I would say, is not for every business. I don't believe that every online business, internet entrepreneur, coach, founder, information marketer should be switching to a community model. However, I do believe that for the right businesses, and there are many of them, community building can be an amazing way to build efficiency and to increase the value of what you do. And the reason for that is because when you put an emphasis on community building, what you're really doing is empowering your customers to help each other. And so instead of being the bottleneck or the focal point of all the support that needs to happen, instead of being the only person there to listen to the stories of transformation or struggle or challenge, now if you are intentionally building community, whether that's in a Facebook group or in an online forum or just on group phone calls, when you're actually empowering people to listen to each other, to share their experiences, to say, hey, that reminds me of when I... That means you don't have to be nearly as involved. And not only that, but it also means that you're not singularly relying on your own experience, your own observation, and your own know-how. As I kind of progressed in that expert space, I became more and more aware of just how much I didn't know, how much I hadn't experienced, how much I hadn't observed yet. And that was a large part of where my discomfort from being the focal point of that need for support, that need for a listening ear and understanding mind came from. And so I knew that if I could open that up so that that was a shared responsibility, so that the platform that we created, the space that we created actually allowed people to do that for each other, then I didn't have to be in that position anymore. And that to me felt a lot more in integrity of what I actually knew to be true. And so I think for a lot of business owners out there, especially in the online business space, whether they're coaches or consultants or educators, they are also feeling that tension, recognizing on a daily basis that they do not have the answer to every single question, that they are not the only person who should be listening to these stories or hearing these challenges. And if that's the case, then that's where community building really comes in handy. I love that. And even if you're not building the community, you need to be part of a community, right? Like, yes. the, you know, because <laughs> um, those challenges that you bring up, everyone goes through those. And who do you turn to? Especially if you turn to your wife or husband and they don't speak business language. Like, it's just, you know, cool. All right. So now we have actually some questions that came from our community. Sure. Um, Cindy, how about we jump into that? One of the best questions is how to start a community from scratch. Great question. So in terms of starting a community from scratch, 
I don't know that communities ever really start from scratch. And I think that's the first thing to recognize is that if you are feeling called to bring people together, if you're feeling like your mission, your purpose involves bringing people together, you need to first recognize where those people are already gathering or how those people are already connected and how you're already connected to those people. And you want to build off of that instead of building in opposition to that. And what I mean by that is you want to recruit those people who already have a connection to the identity you're building a community around, the goal you're building a community around, the interest you're building a community around. You want to invite those people in and give them an easier way to connect to each other, give them a more focused way to connect to each other. Your job isn't creating value the way we think of delivering services or creating information products. Your job in creating value is to create that conduit for those people to connect. So you need to bring those people in so you can identify what is going to make it easier for those people to connect. What kind of space do they need? What kind of events or experiences do they need? What kind of introductions do they need? So bring those people in, recruit those people. And if this is going to be a business venture and maybe you see people paying for this community in the future, you don't want to ask those first few people to pay. I always highly recommend, with very few exceptions, bringing in a core group of charter members into your community that set the stage, build the foundation, start developing the culture of your community before you ever ask for someone to pay for something. And you can find those people in all sorts of different ways. They might be your existing customers. They might be people that you're connecting with at a networking event on a regular basis. They might just be people that you see at the local gym or at the local park on a regular basis that you want to give an easier way for them to connect with each other outside of those spaces. However it works out, invite those people in first, establish that base, and then start layering in new folks that may end up paying for the service that you're providing. I'm so glad that you mentioned the importance of building the culture before you bring in the masses. Let's talk about, you know, what are some of those things that business owners trip up on when they're trying to build a community? Sometimes I see people get caught up on platforms. Like one of the questions that our community asked us to ask Tara was, you know, well, what's the best platform for building an online community? And I'm saying, well, you're asking the wrong question because that's an important question at some stage, but that's probably not the first question you want to be asking if you have no community. So, yes. so what are some of these like pitfalls that you see potential community builders getting into? Yeah. So culture is absolutely one of them. Not defining what you want to see the culture as first and foremost. So we're actually running a community management mastermind right now. So this stuff is all very top of mind for me. And the first place we started was with culture. And the first place we started within culture is understanding what your vision for the community is. What is this thing growing into? Because a lot of times when small business owners are starting to build communities, their vision for it is recurring revenue, right? (laughs) Like, I just want people to be paying me on a monthly or annual basis on repeat, and that will be amazing, right? That is amazing. It's awesome. And also, if you don't have a larger vision and mission behind what you're doing, that ain't going to last very long. (laughs) So most of the time, you're not going to get people to pay you in the first place. So you have to establish what that vision and mission is for your community first and foremost. And then same thing as with starting a business. And this is a step that I think most of us skipped and had to come back to later, which is totally fine. But just like with starting a business, after you nail your vision and mission, you move on to 
values? What are the unique values of this community? And what is different about those values? You know, you don't want to just have service and positive attitude and optimism as your core values. Those are core values for human beings, right? Like those are things we all care about. It's not that they're not important. They're extremely important. But you want your community to be someplace different and you want to have that very, very clearly defined. Now, that all said, there's only so much you can do as a leader to establish culture. Culture isn't established from the top down. It's established from the bottom up. So you have to seed those things into that bottom layer of your community, that foundational level of your community. And that starts with people and it starts with interactions and it starts with modeling ideal behavior. So that's another thing I really try and get people to think about is what is the ideal behavior for members of your community? How do you want them showing up? What kinds of things do you want them posting? What kinds of questions, conversations do you want them having? So whether it's an online community, an offline community, you know, a community that happens over conference calls, what is that ideal behavior and how can you encourage that, role model that, coach that kind of behavior so that that behavior is what establishes your culture and becomes the norm so that then when new people do come in, they can immediately say, this is how I am supposed to behave here. That is how I will behave. And then the community culture becomes self-policing so that you don't have those horror stories of like, well, so-and-so came in or we have all these awful conversations or all these trolls or everyone is so needy. If you establish that from the get-go, you can pretty much avoid 98% of those scenarios. But establishing the culture, understanding what that is, that is absolutely the first step of community building. Once you understand that stuff, then you can start to think about platforms if you haven't decided yet already because the culture and the ideal behavior that you want inside of that culture is going to dictate what the best platform is for you. You know, I think a lot of people go with Facebook groups, for instance, because that's where everybody is. That's what's familiar to people. Yeah, that's all very true. You know what else is already established? What else is already really familiar at Facebook? Facebook culture. And Facebook culture, as we all know, sucks right? People are trolls. They're rude. They give all sorts of unsolicited advice. They're unhelpful. They're weird about it. Largely, people are trying to get it out of their lives, right? Why would you want to build a community on that platform? I don't know. Um, Anyhow, but if you start with culture first, you recognize how a Facebook group isn't going to help you build that culture most of the time. Then there are plenty of other platforms out there. We use Mighty Networks, which tends to be the platform that we recommend. There's vanilla forums, Doki, Teachable, a lot of those more information or instruction-oriented platforms are building more community functions into their systems. You know, I think all of those are great, but it really does start with establishing your culture first because that gives you the blueprint then of what you're actually looking for in a software platform. Oh, wow. That is a big culture thing. Alrighty, to celebrate the launch of this podcast, we're running an iTunes and Stitcher contest leading up to the first 10 episodes of our show. One lucky winner is going to get an invite to become a founding member of our Founders Connect Inner Circle Mastermind Group, which is normally worth 840 USD per year to join. We're also going to give one lucky winner a 30-minute marketing blast off consulting call with myself or a 30-minute ideal relationship coaching call with Cindy. We normally charge $500 per session, so definitely worth it. 
We will announce the winners on episode 11. So if you'd like to become a founding member of our Founders Connect Inner Circle or get some marketing or relationship coaching, head on over to foundersconnect.co forward slash win to enter now. You are listening to the Founders Connect podcast, helping lifestyle entrepreneurs to grow their business online and create a happier marriage. Now back to the show. Now, um, just to like, continue from that thought, there is this concern, wait a minute, everyone's on Facebook. So what do I do if I'm trying to migrate them off onto a mighty networks or whatever? And there's resistance. I'm hitting resistance for them to come to them in their mindset. Maybe it's like, oh no, here's another app I need to install or here's another thing I need to learn, right? And maybe they're not tech savvy. Like I know a lot of the people we work with are, but there are people out there who just don't want to learn a new technology. For them, it's just like, oh my gosh. You know, so how do you advise business owners or community builders to address that with their members? Yeah, I think the first thing to recognize is that we do new things and go new places on a regular basis. Even those of us, myself included, that really love routine and really love staying home. <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> Oh yeah. I still do new things and go new places on a regular basis. And so you have to ask yourself, what makes someone try something new? What makes it worth getting in the car and driving to a new restaurant, a new workout class, a new national park? What makes that worth it. Get into the motivation of your customer. You know, we start thinking, you know, we're so used to thinking about ideal customer profiles at this point. You know, we can nail their, your target demographic in no time. Maybe you've given your ideal customer a name and you've written out their story and that's all really great. Like you should totally do that. And also we often forget that these are real human beings that have motivations very similar to our own. And so especially with community building, you have to understand what motivates them, what gets them to take action, what gets them to show up, what gets them to change their behavior, what is enough to get them to do something different. Once you understand what that motivation is and once you understand what makes them do something different, then you use that to your advantage. How do you build that into your community, your app, your platform, your course, whatever it might be, Build that in, you have a conversation about it, and you have that conversation over and over and over and over again until you think you're sick of it, but they're just starting to understand. That's how you get people to move over. I'm not going to say that it's easy. It is absolutely not easy, but it is so worth it. And for the people who get it, and there will be plenty of them, they will also agree that it is so worth it and they will be so glad that you chose to build something from the ground up as opposed to piggybacking on something that they are already incredibly dissatisfied with. And I just want to kind of underline that point too, is that we know that while we are spending probably more time than ever on Facebook, there are millions of people trying to get off of Facebook, right? Mm. There are millions of people avoiding their news feeds. There are millions of people who haven't been on the platform in days, weeks, or months. I haven't been on the platform in a year. Well, that's not true. I go on the platform. I don't check the news feed. I haven't been on my news feed in over a year now. And so there are plenty of other people out there like me. Think of them as your target market. They want off give them something better. It's not hard to make something better than Facebook, but you do have to put some thought into it, some strategy behind it and really understand what motivates them. Thank you. Now there was, before you go into the relationship, because I see this like dying to get into relationship stuff. Um, there's something you said on one of your creative live classes or 
around there's a difference between what you need to do to attract members versus what you need to do to have them keep coming back. Yeah. Right. So could you just highlight the distinction there for people listening and why that's so important to understand? Sure. So joining a new community, it's a singular thing, right? You join a new community once and that takes a sort of qualifying event. What is the aha moment? What is the trigger? What is the problem, the goal that's going to make someone realize this is a good next step for them and make that big leap over that hurdle of joining a new community? That's one thing that you need to think about. And that's a process in and of itself. And it takes time and it's going to take iteration and evolution. The other thing that has to happen is once someone joins a community, they need a really good reason to come back. And if you want to have a strong community and a strong community culture, you need people to be coming back on a regular basis. It doesn't have to be daily. It might be weekly or monthly, but they need to understand and you need to build into your system a reason for them to come back. Technologically speaking, we do this with things like notifications, with reminder emails, with events or new posts. But what's way more effective is helping people understand when they should be using your community. So what is that thing that happens on a regular basis that is going to trigger them to say, oh, that's when I'm supposed to go to that community that I just joined, right? So for us at Co-Commercial, we think anytime a small business owner has a question, a challenge, a problem, a new goal for their business, something that they don't know how to do, they should come to Co-Commercial and ask about it because there's somebody there, probably at least five people, who've already overcome that thing or have an answer to that particular question. And it's a lot faster than Googling for answers or figuring it out on your own. And so that happens to be a trigger that happens for most small businesses on a daily basis. <laughs> now, I'm not going to say that the majority of our users are daily users. They're not. The majority of our users are weekly or monthly users, but they're still triggered by that realization, ooh, I don't know how to do that, but I know where to go. I'm going to go to co-commercial. So you want to figure out what that habit is that you're trying to form for your people so that you can keep them coming back. So that's sort of the distinction between what helps people join a community for the first time, which is a really big hurdle, versus what helps people coming back, which is a smaller hurdle, but has to happen over and over and over again. And that puts emphasis on the business owner or the community builders to really focus on, well, what is the value there? Like, yes. what am I creating? How are we as a community creating that? And what are the rituals or the culture behind all of that? Yeah. So fantastic. Okay, let's talk relationship. <laughs> so my question is, what was the moment when you knew Sean was the one that you wanted to be with for life? <laughs> um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I can't say that this was the exact moment I knew I wanted to be with him for the rest of my life, but it was definitely the moment where I realized this person is oddly suited for me <laughs> in a way I may never be able to replicate. <laughs> um, so on our very first date, which was, you know, as awkward as any person's first date, right? But it was fun and we definitely hit it off. I started talking about Star Trek for some reason, probably yeah. because that's like a go-to for, can I trust this person? Are they a Trekkie? Are they going to let me talk about Star Trek? It's like a filter for me. Mm -hmm. So I started talking about Star Trek and he said, oh, oh, 
wait, I have something to show you. And he grabs his backpack from the bar stool next to him, pulls out his wallet. I'm like, what is going on? And he opens up his wallet and in the plastic sleeve place where you're supposed to put pictures of your family, um, <laughs> he had put a picture of the comic book version of Kirk and Spock. Oh man. And so he'd been carrying around Kirk and Spock in his wallet for years before that moment. And I was like, speaking of being weird, right? And like what the weirdness scale is, I was like, oh, okay, you're a weirdo like me. I'm down with this. <laughs> so I think both of us kind of identify that particular moment as an aha moment, whether it's the moment that we realize like this is it or whether it was just, you know, recognizing that, okay, this is going to go somewhere and time to strap in. <laughs> like this, this is the real deal. Um, that, that particular moment was really key for us. Yeah. You're going where no humans have gone before. Totally. <laughs> anyway, so uh, love it. Love it. Um, what activities do you, or common interests have you developed that bring you closer together? Definitely hiking and exploring national parks, like I talked about earlier. Also a new one for us, last year, end of July, I started bouldering, which is rock climbing without ropes. You do it on a shorter wall and they're a little more kind of athletic moves, but I absolutely love it. And I got super excited about it and just, you know, I was going three or four times a week and I was begging him to come with me after a few months. And, you know, every so often he would appease me and come along, but he didn't love it. He was like, yeah, this is cool. I'm glad to hang out with you, but whatever. But actually on our trip out to Montana to get married, we decided to spontaneously visit a few new to us gyms, right? Gyms that we would have never gone to otherwise, a gym in Minneapolis, a gym in Bozeman, gym in Chicago, gym in Whitefish. And in the process of visiting these gyms, he had a couple of climbing breakthroughs. And so now he's as obsessed with it as I am, if not more so. (laughs) And so at least three times a week, sometimes more than that, we're at the climbing gym, figuring stuff out on the wall, talking about strategy for getting to the next hold. And I think that there's really, you know, similar to hiking, I think there's something really unique about having common interests that are physical activities as well as an opportunity to connect emotionally and mentally. And so for us, those kinds of activities are really important. But, you know, we also just love sitting on the couch together at night and watching YouTube and, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) exploring great restaurants and all sorts of things like that. But probably hiking and bouldering are two of our top shared activities at this point love that outdoors yes Yes. physical okay what's your best tip for building sexual intimacy with your partner (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is where my lack of emotional availability i think is going to come into play um i honestly do not even have a tip for this i should have thought this one out beforehand For us, it is not something that I think we've had to really work at. And at the same time, I think what works in the bedroom is the same thing that works in the office or the dining room or the living room, which is communication, right? And recognizing that the way I communicate is not the way that he communicates and what his expectations are, not what my expectations are, and constantly seeking to come closer and closer on those things, not to change each other, but to have a better understanding of what the other's expectations are. You know, when we say 
X, we mean Y, those kinds of things. I think that that's important in all areas, but it absolutely crosses over into sexual intimacy as well. Yeah. The communication aspect is actually segue nicely into this next question, which is around money. And did you always have the same views on money or did you develop an approach where you could actually have those conversations in a productive way? Yeah, I think money is one where we're still figuring a lot of things out because I have been the breadwinner and the sole breadwinner for so long. I have sort of handled money, which is not an effective way to do things (laughs) because honestly, he's been in the dark quite a while. The other thing that we as a couple have kind of had to navigate is different backgrounds with money and different current approaches to money. So we come from very similar backgrounds financially, single mothers, make and do, not having all the newest everything, those kinds of situations. But Sean had been in the service industry for a long time, similarly to how I had been in retail, but my money outlook changed dramatically when I started my business. And it took me a lot of processing and a lot of thinking and a lot of working through things to understand a new money mindset and how I needed to approach money as a small business owner, thinking of it as a tool, thinking of it as something that is infinite. I can earn as much money as I want as opposed to something that is debited every week from my paycheck, right? Mm. And so I had dealt with a lot of those things. And in our relationship, a lot of what we have worked through is sort of me catching him up to that mindset, right? And allowing to him to feel more freedom with money. And so I think the next place we need to go is to continue that same idea of communication and better understanding what our expectations are on either side, better understanding what we mean when we say X or Y, and just getting a lot clearer on that. So I think for us, financial communication, financial planning, strategy, all of that for us is still a work in progress, but we have certainly been through a lot on that front, just in terms of reprogramming and thinking through mindset and all that good stuff. So I'm curious how how does that influence your daughter? Because you've got two different adults in the room who who have different ways of approaching or how they've grown up, you know, with different mindsets. I'm just curious, how have you seen that play out with even you talk to your daughter about about money or when she's got questions around things she wants, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, like mommy, I've seen the the hot, you know, my friend's got this hottest (laughs) new thing. And like, yeah. (laughs) So yeah. How does that work out for you? Yeah, we have a lot of conversations about money, but probably still not as many as we should. So we actually have three parents in the situation, right? Because my daughter lives with her father and visits us on the weekends. And so she is influenced by all three of our money mindsets and approaches to money. You know, I will be honest in that I think my daughter thinks that mommy is the bank, right? Because (laughs) if she wants something, daddy will say, well, ask mommy for that. And then, you know, Sean will say something offhand about like, well, yeah, you know, Talk to your mom about that. I think as much as I am labeled mom, I am labeled bank. Um, You know, we just went school shopping this last weekend and that was a bit of an aha moment for her money-wise. But the biggest thing that I try and teach my daughter about money is spending money aligned with your values. I do mean it from the perspective of, you know, environmental values or, you know, socially conscious values. I absolutely mean that 
too. But what I'm really looking at, because those concepts are big for her to understand at this point, what I really mean by that is getting her to think about what she actually wants and why she wants it as opposed to just, well, I want to buy another blind bag toy just because I like opening the blind bag, right? That's not a great use of spending for our values. And so what I want her to understand is that she can have anything she really wants, but she's got to actually really want it. And then she's got to hold herself back on the stuff she doesn't actually really want. And that was the same lesson I learned growing up in a household that didn't have very much money, right? I don't think it has anything to do with how much you have or how much you don't have. I think it's recognizing you can afford the things that you really want if you're clear on what you really want and ignore the stuff that you don't want and don't need. So that's the main lesson I'm trying to teach her. And that's what the vast majority of our conversations are around. Great advice, isn't it? Fantastic advice. (laughs) I might have to listen to that. (laughs) I mean, I need to listen to that too. So... (laughs) Okay, so we're going to wrap up with a couple of questions. One question is around what have you had to let go of in order for you to arrive to where you have arrived today? Oh, that is such a good question. What have I had to let go of? I think one of the biggest things I've had to let go of, and I will say I'm still in process with this, is the notion that it has to be hard or that hard work equals reward. That's not to say that hard work that I don't believe that it's important and that I don't work hard. I absolutely do work hard. But what I've tried to do for myself, you know, after lots of observation and lots of conversations is to detach my hard work from the reward that I am seeking, whether that's financial reward or the reward of seeing a customer transform their business or whatever it might be. My hard work doesn't dictate those kinds of results. And if I am willing to work hard at building something extremely valuable, I can be rewarded 10, 100, a million times fold over the actual work that I put into something. And so as much as I am a hard worker, I am also seeking to find ways to let it be easy and to detach hard work from the reward that I'm looking for. It's very refreshing to hear that from a consummate systems builder like you, because for (laughs) me, it's like that's been ingrained in in us, right? Growing up in our families and our culture. And it's like, we're just going through the motions of that now, understanding that, you know, it's not about how the 60, 70 hours of work that I put in each week to make it happen. It's actually more about building the space and the people and the resources that allow things to flourish. Exactly. Okay. So after all is said and done, what do you want to be remembered by or for? I think, and maybe it's because it's what I am working on right now. And so I will take a kind of shorter term lens to this. But what I currently want to be remembered for is just bringing people together, creating space, creating opportunities, creating experiences that allow people to create connections, make connections that they would have otherwise been able to make. Wow, that's great, isn't it? Fantastic. Tara McMullen, thank you so much for being on our show and enlightening us with your wisdom today. You are fantastic. And um, we uh, will send all our people to co-commercial and get them involved in what you're doing there because we are just really inspired by, by the mission and what you've got going. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you.
So that was our great conversation with Tara McMullen. Uh, you can find out more about her work at CoCommercial and uh, request your invitation to join the community and trial it out for 30 days at cocommercial.co. Uh, we'll also add a link to uh, Tara's site and, and her profiles on our show notes. We've also created a community strategy worksheet following Tara's advice that you can use to create your own community strategy. So if that's something you wanted to build, then make sure you uh, go through that worksheet and that will make it a lot more easier for you. You can grab it free on the show notes for this episode. So make sure you head over there. That's at uh, foundersconnect.co forward slash podcast. Okay, so Cindy, what was your key takeaway from our interview with Tara? Key takeaway is always communicate to your partner, to your business. To your community. And to your community. Fantastic. And communication can solve a lot of problems. Um, So we need to learn how to do that better. Yes, the right communication. Awesome. All right. So for me, my key takeaway uh, was around if you want to – so. If you want to start a community for your business, then you really need to start with the vision of the business, the values um, and the behaviors that you want your community members to demonstrate and exhibit. All right. So you need to think about those things long before you start looking at what platform you're going to use. Okay. Because once you understand those three things, that will actually determine what type of platform is best suited suited for what you're trying to create. Okay. And there's also a, a second takeaway that that was really big for me was there's a difference. You need to um, think about how to attract your members uh, and what is the thing or the event uh, that's happening for them that will make them want to join your community. And then you need also think about what are the behaviors or culture um, that's going to keep them coming back. Okay. And they're two different things you need to consider. All right. So that was a uh, great lesson from Tara. Exactly. Next episode, we'll talk about what to do when your spouse doesn't support your business. This will be the first episode in our series on couple communication. So make sure you tune in. And remember to live passionately, purposefully, and confidently. Till next time, ciao!